0: I love football. I don't know about anybody else in the room, but I love to watch football. I especially like college football, but I'll watch a fair amount of pro football when it's on, too. And uh, I just love football. And the, the, I love to watch defense. I, I know offense is really thrilling, but I really love to watch defense. And there's a particular group of players in the, on the defense that I really like to watch. And those are the linebackers. I just love watching those guys because of what they do. And in case you may not know, linebackers are the defensive guys that are typically just a little bit off the line, and they don't know what they're going to do until the play starts. I mean, they have an idea of what the possibilities are, but they stand there, and since they're just a step or two off of the line, then they can let the play begin, and then they can go after what they need to do. And it's fascinating to watch them think so fast and make their moves. Sometimes they break through into the backfield and cause a sack. But so many things can happen. Sometimes they just plug a hole and some running back is coming through and boom! That's a fun thing to watch, right? I don't know how fun it is for them, but it's fun to watch. And I like these linebackers because they tend to stand back and they're pursuers. They're hunters is what they are. They're opportunists. They're pursuers, they're hunters. They wait and they don't care about some other things that are going on in the play. They don't care that a wide receiver is gone out because there'll be there'll be a defensive back to pick him up theoretically, right? They don't care. They're they're just focused on pursuing a target. Pursuing a person. Pursuing the person with the ball. I feel like that's what God is doing in this room today. He's playing linebacker. He's pursuing a few of you. Church, this message is not for everybody in the room. This message isn't meant for everybody. So church... If you discern that this message that comes is not for you, I need you to pray. I need you to stop listening and pray that the Holy Spirit pursues the people that this message is meant to pursue, because I believe God's playing linebacker today. Pray with me, Father, we pray your blessing, we invite your power we invite the present ministry of your Holy Spirit to come and visit your word. God, come and get the ones that you want to get today. Pursue them with a father's love and with a warrior's strength. Pursue them, God. Lord, we'll do the blocking. In Jesus' name, we'll tie up the enemy. Would you go after would you go after the ones who need to come to you today? In the name of Jesus, amen. We're continuing in the Through the Bible series today. We're into the Gospel of Luke. By way of context, this is a pretty straightforward Gospel, but it has some very important features. Ancient tradition lists Luke, the physician, as the author this was, uh, there are a couple of references to him in the New Testament. One in the book of Colossians, where Paul references Luke as the physician. This uh, is likely the Luke that is described as the one who traveled around with the apostles, with the disciples in the early church in the book of Acts. But the. It was ascribed, uh, the authorship was ascribed to this gospel by the early church fathers. So like the next generation, when it began to become important, that stuff was written down. Remember we talked last week about the importance and the reliability of oral tradition? Well, as these people began to leave the earth, then it became necessary and important to write these things down. So the next generation of people who had heard who had heard who wrote this, then started to make these like authorship uh, scriptions, if you will. And uh, this was given to Luke, the doctor. It was unclear whether, whether Luke was a Jew or a Gentile. It's a little bit unclear. There's really good argument for both sides. That fact will have a little more weight in, in just a moment. But this is the first of a two-part series in your New Testament, The Luke-Acts tradition, okay, so there's Luke, as you do the gospel, for those of you who are new, or the the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. If you just took John out of there geographically, you could flow right from the end of Luke to the beginning of the book of Acts, and it would be one continuous stream, and it's kind of cool to read it that way sometimes, just read all the way through. In Acts chapter one, verse one, for example, it says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And uh, so as he refers to a former book in the book of Acts, he's referring to this Gospel of Luke thing, okay? Um, More than a third of the Gospel of Luke is unique material to Luke, that we only have it in the Gospel of Luke, so you know how you're reading through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you see that there are parallel passages, things that occur in, in each of them uh, that are in all of them, I guess I should say, and then there and then there are some things that, that you only find it in that gospel. Well, Luke is the most generous of the gospels with unique material, and uh, over a third of it, about 35% of it, is actually Unique material. Here are some things that we would not have if not for the Gospel of Luke. For the, just some examples. W- the entire infancy narrative would be gone. The whole thing about Jesus being a, a baby would be gone. That would really interrupt our Christmas celebrations a lot, wouldn't it? The Good Samaritan would be gone. The Prodigal Son, wow, would be gone if not for Luke. The rich man and Lazarus would be gone. The sending out of the 72 would be gone. Jesus speaking to the disciples after rising from the dead on the road to Emmaus would be gone. If not for Luke and his obedience, those things would be gone. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where God is stirring you to do something and you say, What difference does it make if I do that? Other people are doing it. If not for Luke, those things would be gone. If not for you, those things would not happen. In this regard, the gospel of Luke is the gospel of the greatest level of detail of the things that happened in the life of Jesus. Because of that, it's the longest of all four of the gospels, covering more pages in your Bible than any of the other three Gospels. Now, as a later Gospel, it was the latest Gospel written. It was written as a Gospel to the Christians. I love this, because here's what we have. The Gospel of Matthew was a Gospel to the Jews, proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Last week, the Gospel of Mark is a Gospel to the Gentiles, Doesn't fuss with all that Old Testament stuff, just goes right for Greek people and says, here's the message, here's what you need to know. Now, a couple of decades later, what we need is we need a gospel that is written to Christians. Regardless of their their heritage, regardless of whether they had been Jews or Gentiles, now they're mingling together in churches throughout Palestine and Asia Minor, and they're mingling together, and that prejudice between them is beginning to subside. We saw how big that prejudice uh, against Gentile believers was at different times in the Bible. The The whole book of Galatians is written to deal with that that we are not under law. But now we're getting to a point where that prejudice is beginning to subside. Praise God that prejudice can subside in the church. I pray to God that continues to happen. It doesn't always happen. It should happen. That those things that divide us should not matter a whit. And so we have this gospel that was written to the Christians. Luke was probably... When we think think about his heritage, uh, something that's called a Hellenistic Jew. Now, Hellenism was the influence of the Greek culture on on society, and uh, and uh, so so Luke was most likely a person of Jewish heritage, but had been so heavily influenced by the Greek culture that he was. He was kind of a, a secular believer, if you will. You know what I mean? A sec- you know how we sometimes say secular Christians today? People who claim the name of Jesus, but their lives don't really match it at all? They just sort of believe it. it's a religion for them, but it's not a life for them because this age has so crept in on them? That is likely what Luke was. He was a Hellenistic Jew and combined elements of his Judaism with elements of Greek society. And because of this, it makes him a perfect person to write a gospel for Christians. Because no longer was he a non-believer. No longer was he a secular person. But he came to the Lord and he followed him hard. And everything changed for him. But he had that sense of understanding of what it would be like to have been raised in a heritage of faith, but to have just lost your way. Because of the secular world in which we live. So it makes it a great gospel for Christians who sometimes struggle with the same thing. The hot spot for us today, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, there's a passage that if you have ever been in Sunday school, you probably heard this. For some reason, uh, the few times that I went to Sunday school as a child, I remember this story. I don't, I don't know why, but I remembered this. It's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I believe God wants to say something to us today, and in particular to a few of you today, from this parable. In uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says, "...to some who were confident of their own righteousness..." And looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood up at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 9 says this is a parable. It's not something that Jesus necessarily actually saw. But he's telling this very critical story to illustrate an essential point. So it's a parable. And he says that there's this Pharisee. You now, what's a Pharisee? We've been around this poll many times, what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee was a, 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 group, a group of people called Pharisees, a group of men called Pharisees, who had committed themselves to a very strict observance of the Old Testament law. Now they started in about 600 BC, and they thrived through about 160 AD. So for about five and a half centuries, these Pharisees were uh, were were big players in the nation of Israel, and they had given themselves to an emphasis on the very strict observance of the Old Testament law. That you've got to, Now there were 613 Levitical laws. which is what man does with the simplicity of God. God gives 10 commandments, we make it 613 laws, right? And so this was what they were committed to, and they were committed to demanding that everybody else do the same. And so you really didn't want to be around a Pharisee because it made you feel pretty crummy, right? Because here they were, presumably following all of these laws and demanding that everybody do the same. Now, when you read the Bible, you see that Jesus consistently had a problem with these Pharisees, didn't he? Consistently, he had a problem with these Pharisees for a couple of reasons. And the first reason is that though they emphasized the letter of the law, they consistently violated the spirit of the law. When God gives a law, it's for life. It's for a reason. When God gives a law that says don't do that, it's because it's taking life away from you. Now what was happening with these Pharisees is that they were saying, this is the law and you must do it, but they were doing it in such a way that it had no life. It didn't bring life. It was following the law for the sake of following the law. But in it, there was no life. If you've ever been trapped up in legalism, you know how this works. That there's a, there's a great expectation on people and even a church to follow a certain set of rules very meticulously, but it doesn't bring life. That's what these Pharisees were doing. So they were observing the letter but violating the spirit. The second problem that Jesus had consistently with the Pharisees was that they themselves were not keeping the law that they preached. They weren't doing it. They were only doing it in public. And so when Jesus talked about not standing on street corners to pray out loud to be seen by men, this is who he's talking about. He's not saying don't pray in public for heaven's sake. He's saying don't, don't live differently in public than you live in private. And this was a problem. Matthew 23, if you want to see drama, you can read Matthew 23 where Jesus has this great throwdown with the Pharisees. And man, he just lets them have it. And one of the things he says that for me is kind of the crescendo of the whole thing is Verse 15. Where he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That's not something you want to hear from the Lord. In defense of the Pharisees, I think they were doing what they knew to do. They were the only ones in Israel who were resisting the advance of Hellenism. Who were saying, no, we are separate people. We can't simply just integrate and compromise everything that we believe just so we fit into society. This is how they started. But then they lost their way. They lost their way. It goes to show how misguided we can become in legalism, doesn't it? These are the Pharisees. Well, what about this tax collector guy? Tax collector was an agent of the Roman government who collected taxes from the people. So remember, Israel was living in Roman-occupied territory. That in Israel, the people were living, but the... They were living in an occupied land. The Romans were there in force. They were collecting taxes. They were ruling the land. And so they engaged certain members of their own community, certain Jews, to be tax collectors for them. And here's how tax collection worked. It's the Romans would say, John, you're a tax collector, and from your region, we are expecting you to bring this much tax to us. Now, we don't care how much you collect because you can keep the extra. That's going to be your commission. We're expecting this from you, and if you don't get that, we're sending guido. Okay? But if you can get that and more, well, then you can live a lavish lifestyle. And by the way, we're going to give you these six really hefty dudes with spears called centurions to help you in your collection. There was no system of collection. There were no tax tables. There was just this. So when you saw John coming, (laughs) thank you for playing, it wasn't a good day. To make it worse, he had been one of us. But he sold out to the Romans. So he was despised. Can you imagine I don't know if you've ever done anything that you deeply regretted. Probably not. But to wake up and go, oh God, that's real. Oh God, that's real. And to be remorseful and repentant, and to fall on your face before God and say, God, is there any way out of this? This is what we have. These two guys showing up to the synagogue, a Pharisee and a tax collector. You can see the tension, right? A pompous hypocrite and a traitor showing up. Both of them equally off the mark, right? Let me illustrate this for you. Hey, John, would you come up? Okay. Okay. Hey, Vlad and Chris, I need you two. Yeah, that Chris, yeah. The one sitting next to Vladimir. You guys know each other? No, yes. <laughs> you don't claim <laughs> Would you kind of go over over there and be the tax collector? Now, I need one of you to be the Pharisee and one of you to be Jesus. Oh, John right here. This, you're going to be Jesus? You've been picked. As Jesus. That makes you the Pharisee. Stand right, you stand right here. (laughs) Stand right here. Pharisee, come over here. Please. Could you stand up on this level? Could you kind of look out this direction and look like you're just proud of yourself? What you've accomplished. (laughs) You're a pretty humble guy, I know, so I won't pack the part like i 'm over all these people, remember he said the parable was talking about people who look down on others right, because of their own righteousness. Can you pose that? all really oh, that no, I mean, I mean how I was just doing that because that 's how I stand, but I mean so you're maybe pat yourself on the back, maybe can you reach around pat no, you pat yourself on the back that 's a saying we have here in the United States. <laughs> You're the tax collector. I'm thinking you're down. I'm thinking you're down, man. You're a mess. It says he wouldn't even look. You're Jesus. Could you stand right here in this lit up spot here, okay? Could you strike a Jesus pose for us? That's a pretty good Jesus if I ever saw one. A pretty good Jesus, all right. Now, kind of look away a little bit, kind of over that. See those people over there? You're so much above them, man. No, I feel tall. (laughs) Okay. Now let me ask you this: Which of these men need Jesus? They both do. They both need him equally. Which one's going to get Jesus? Why? Because he humbled himself. Because he bowed down. Because he woke up one morning and said, I can't believe this mess that I'm in. Right? I can't even believe this mess that I'm in. That's all I got, God. Is that right? That's all I got. I don't have this. I don't have anything to bring. This is all I have. Good news. You don't need anymore. You want to know a terrible thing that happens sometimes? Rick, I need you, please. And I'm not saying this has happened in your life, but I need to make a very negative example of you. Okay. Okay. Can you bow down like you're a tax collector also, would you mind? Thank you. I know it's getting harder, isn't it? I know. I know. I will help you. (laughs) A terrible thing sometimes happens. A person fully starts here, completely fully starts here. And the Lord, he lifts his head up. He sees the Lord. And he gets up. And he moves toward the Lord, and he's so grateful for the forgiveness that he's received, and he's embraced by the Lord. There you go. Good. Good. That's a good embrace, I guess, but kind of looking for more, but but then sometimes, sometimes, and this is a very dangerous thing, this person forgets where they started. Step right up. Yep. And they join this group. They forget. They forget that they started there. Come with me. And that they should have stopped right here. Let's pray. Father in heaven in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will look out on us today and you will see who you're looking for today. The person who just needs to say, how did I I get here? person who just needs to bow before you. If you are a person here today who feels as though you need to bow before the Lord, whether you're first time tax collector or realize that you passed through and you fell for the lie of legalism after you became a Christian and you need to turn back and come back to Jesus if you're a person here today and you feel as though you are the object of God's pursuit today that He's calling you I want to invite you to get up from where you are right now and come up here and bow before the Lord come Church, I want to invite you to stand with me. If your heart is moved by this message, by this scripture, and you see a sense sense in your heart the Lord is calling you and saying, come and bow before me, I want to invite you to come, come right up front and bow before me. no judgment on our part. It's really none of our business. (coughs) Only you know the nature of the stirring I'm just inviting you to respond to.